Well, if you're joining us here for the first time, or if you haven't been here in a while, uh, we are actually wrapping up a sermon series that's been going on for about 30 weeks or so, with a couple breaks here and there. Let me start with a question. Do you ever feel like something is not quite right? Maybe not quite right with you. Maybe not quite right with the world. Maybe you've tried to find ways to make it right or to feel like it's right, to make it better, something to give some semblance of satisfaction or joy or hope or even just trying to feel normal, whatever that means. Something that you search for to give meaning and purpose. And, and I don't want to speak for you, but, but I think this is common to all human beings. We are searching for something to satisfy us. And yet, time and time again, things, however, maybe they fulfill us temporarily in the long term, they let us down. And I want to tell you today, if, if you feel that way or have felt that way, you are not alone. It's not just you. I think sin lies to us and it convinces us, I'm the only messed up person in the room. Nobody else struggles with this. They're all fine. Newsflash, we're not fine. And we all have those moments of, there's something not right. The Bible begins with God creating all things and specifically then creating humanity, human beings, Adam and Eve, to live in his perfect, glorious presence. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And and the course of human history was redirected along the course of this rebellion. We are all born into that situation. We are all born into rebellion against the Lord God Almighty who created us. And so it is right and it is normal that we would have this sense that something's not right. It's true. Something is not right. And I think ever ever since the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled, the course of human history can be described with one powerful word, dissatisfaction. We are seeking to feel a sense of being satisfied, whether it's meaning, purpose, love, hope, joy. We want to be satisfied. There is this hole in our lives that cannot be filled. And we try over and over and over again. And I would guess if I went around to people in this room, each one of us would have lists of ways we have tried to satisfy that feeling that something is missing. And many of us would give testimonies of ways those things have let us down. I've called this sermon series Focal Point. And it's been a sermon series on all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And today we're going to look at the end of the Bible, the end of the book, the last two chapters. We're going to use that to look back at everything we've talked about to see how all of it points to Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of all of Scripture. And the Bible shows us through all of this two very important truths. 
The first is that humanity will continually come up with new ways to seek our own Garden of Eden. Our own place to be satisfied. Our own place to be happy. We are constantly trying to recreate our own gardens. And we try to do it on our own apart from the Lord. And in these efforts, the Bible is very clear. And I think our testimonies, if we're honest with each other, are very clear. It will and can never and will never work. Ever. That's one thing that I believe the Bible makes very clear to us. The second thing that the Bible makes equally clear to us is that through all of that, God has never and will never give up on us. His plan, which we have traced from Genesis to Revelation, is to be with us. For us to live in his perfect presence, unashamed and unafraid. And he has been at work ever since Adam and Eve rebelled. He continues to be at work through the course of human history, all the way to the moment that Jesus Christ returns. His plan has never changed and never failed. He has pursued us. He has wooed us. He has at times grabbed hold of us and pulled us back from the brink of destruction. All the while we pursue our own happiness, satisfaction, and meaning apart from him. And in our darkest hour as humanity, when we were hopeless and lost, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. We sing about it every Sunday. And in two weeks, we're going to come together on Good Friday and remember that the son of God painfully died in our place, taking our punishment for our rebellion. This is not just a a Christian tradition. It's not just a holiday. It's a time to stop and put our eyes on our Savior Jesus Christ and say, that should have been me. He took my place. And then a few days after that, on Sunday morning, we will celebrate, rejoice, remember That the Son of God did not stay in the grave. He rose and promises eternal life to all who believe. And I've tried throughout this sermon series to show you how everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. Chris has been struggling with this in his class on Leviticus. As as people keep wanting to go to Jesus. And he's kept telling them, just wait, we'll get there. Let's look at what the text is saying. But that's good. Like that shows people that understand scripture because they understand everything does point to Jesus. So Chris, you're wrong in that, but it's okay. (laughs) No, it's it's because that's what his next class is all about next week. Next week, he's going to talk about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And I've tried to look then as we looked at the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and then we looked at us, the church, and the letters of the New Testament, and how we are to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we look back and we say everything in the New Testament points back to who Jesus is and what he has done. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the light in the darkness when we were lost. The shepherd when we were sheep that went astray. The Savior who died in our place when we were the ones deserving death. The one who rose from the dead promising eternal life to all who trust in him. A new life 
the life that we have been searching for, longing for, even if we didn't understand what it was. The real and true life that is greater than all the substitutes we could ever pursue. The message of the Bible is powerful. It is rich with meaning. It brings healing, correction, challenge, at times it confronts us and our own ideas, yet through it all there is a storyline, one story, one account of God who created us for his purpose, who loves us and wants to be with us. And even in our rebellion, he has provided a way, a way to save us through his son, Jesus Christ, and for us to be with him forever. And so today, open with me to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the last two chapters of the Bible. I believe that Revelation 21 and 22 are vital for Christians to understand. Because in many ways, what's going to happen in these two chapters, don't get me wrong, all of scriptures, God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, it's all important. And I feel a little bit hypocritical as a pastor sometimes when I'm like, this passage is really important. It's all important. And so is this one. Also, more so, maybe. But it's helpful. It's helpful to know it because then when you're reading the rest of it, you can go, oh, that's what that's talking about. It gives us a big picture. And so today... As we walk through this in in chunks, what I want to do is something I I don't normally do and I haven't done a lot through this passage. We've been taking big portions of Scripture, and I haven't always had time in my sermons to read those portions of Scripture. Sometimes we've covered three, four, five, six books of the Bible at a stretch. Obviously, we couldn't read that. But I want to read this. I want you to hear from the words of Scripture because these chapters are so powerful. So let me read, starting in verse 1, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. And I encourage you to either follow along in your Bibles, or just close your eyes and listen. Either way. But I want you to focus on what God's Word is saying. Don't just tune this out and go, oh, the pastor's just doing his thing. Listen to what the Word of God is saying. John is writing, he's been given this vision in Revelation of of what's happening at the end. And now he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God 
and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. A little bit of context here. Because you can't have this chapter, much like many chapters in Scripture, can't stand on its own. What happened before this is that God has purged the world of all sin. We looked at that two weeks ago. Purged the world of all sin. And along with it, we looked at the very difficult truth that in order for God's perfect, holy, glorious presence to live on a perfect, holy, glorious earth with his people that have been made perfect, holy, and glorious through his son, Jesus Christ, in order for that to take place... All sin had to be removed. And all those not saved by Jesus Christ, according to the word of God, are also removed. So that now there is this clean place, untouched by sin, purified by Jesus' blood, so that God can live with his people. And I love then as he says, okay, now because that has happened, here is what can take place. I love how in verse 5, John hears this voice from the throne of heaven saying, write this down. Make sure you get this. I am making all things or everything new. How? What does that mean? What does it look like? That's exactly what John is going to see. So let's look at what John sees that is made new. And as we walk through this, I want you to see how this ties in with everything else in all of Scripture. God did not wake up one day at the end of the Bible or at the end of all human history when Jesus comes back. He doesn't wake up and go, hmm, let's do this completely different. He is fulfilling everything he has set up through all of Scripture and all of history. And he starts with the new heavens and the new earth. Where does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right away, we see the tie-in with Genesis 1. The Bible ends where it began. God had a purpose in the heavens and the earth. Humanity rebelled and sinned, and we have human history all through that. But where does everything end? The new heavens and the new earth, exactly as God intended. In verse 2, we see a new Jerusalem. You remember when God's people were stuck in Egypt, they were enslaved, and he comes and he raises up Moses, and he says, I'm going to show you a place, and I'm going to deliver my people, and I will take them to this place. And what was so special about that place? He would take them. It was there that he would be with them. He would live among them. In this city, Jerusalem, and here we have this beautiful Old Testament language that this city, this new Jerusalem, and it's also described in what is more reminiscent of New Testament language, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, which is also used in the Old Testament, but mostly in the New. It's this beautiful picture of God's people throughout the ages being brought together so that God can live among them forever and ever. So we have a new city, this new place to dwell, that is also a new people, God's chosen people, both from the Old and the New Testament, to be his perfect bride. What a beautiful picture of somebody longing for the closeness of that relationship. 
And in their culture, I think this, this image was even stronger. Because in their culture, the, the husband would go off and he would prepare the home. And then one day he would come and they didn't always know when. They didn't really have like text messages and stuff. He, they didn't know. And he would come and when he arrived, the wedding would take place. And that's the picture here. The people of God longing for their groom to come, their savior to come, and the savior longing to come and be with his bride. It's a picture of absolute joy. But how will it be new? What's going to make this so different? God will dwell with his people. The great tragedy tragedy early in scripture is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they have to leave the garden. And I know we read that as like, okay, bummer, we're not in the garden. You have to understand that the garden is set up as the absolute perfect dwelling place of God. Adam and Eve lived in God's presence unashamed and unafraid until, until they sinned. And in their sin, they could not remain there. And God forces them out of the garden. That's part of the reason we have this longing that something is not right. We were made to live in God's presence. But we are outside the garden gate. Because in our sin, if we were to live or show up in God's perfect holy presence with nothing being changed in us, we would be wiped out. Sin cannot stand or exist in the presence of God. And so all throughout Scripture, there is this unveiling, this revealing of what it takes for God to dwell with us. And one of the richest passages in Scripture, richest uh, uh, images in Scripture, is the Old Testament tabernacle. God dwelt among his people. And it was beautiful, and they loved it, and they welcomed the Lord. He was dwelling with them, but there's always a separation. There's always a veil between the holy place of God and where the people could come. There's always procedures they have to go through because they are sinners and he is holy. Chris has been talking about this in the adult Sunday school class with the Day of Atonement. And it's such a powerful picture to say, yes, God is dwelling among his people, but there's a problem that still has to be taken care of. And here in verse 3 of chapter 21, All of that separation is gone. All of the veil between God and his people, all of the things God's people had to do in order to even partially come to his presence, it's gone. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with him. What else is different? There's no more death. Everything associated with death, mourning, crying, pain, sickness, tears, all of it is washed away. It is done. And I know as a pastor, I I have the privilege to sit with people in some of their darkest moments. And, And you can hear it in their voice and in their hearts, the struggle of what they're going through. And many of you have been through these times or you're going through it right now. And underneath all of it, there is this feeling something has to change. Something's not right. Look at that verse again. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The journey from the Garden of Eden until the day that Christ returns is filled with death and mourning, lament and struggle. And through it all, we have this sense of longing that something has to change. And here at the end of scripture, we see fulfillment, complete satisfaction, no more loss, no more death, no more suffering. How? How is this possible? Look at six through seven. The one on the throne says, it is done. What's done? God's plan of salvation is done. God taking care of sin is done. There's echoes here of the voice of Jesus on the cross when he died and he paid the price for our sins and his last words are, it is finished. It's done. He paid the price. What he paid for on the cross will be fully completed and realized when he comes back again. And all sin is removed from the world. The world has been cleansed by sin. Those not, by, not saved by Jesus Christ have been removed. And they are sent to hell, and that's so hard, but there can be no heaven without the removal of all sin. And you cannot remove sin without the removal of those who are stuck in their sin. And God says he is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. He is the purpose and the conclusion of all things. And later in chapter 22, this is specifically said about Jesus Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And here we have another picture from the Garden of Eden as well, this life-giving water that is being given continually and without cost. Think of what this would have meant in a world that didn't really have running water. That day after day after day, so much of their time was spent finding pure enough drinking water. And, and if their water source failed or changed, they would die. And to hear, I will give you water without cost, unending. And to know that that would never fail. For them, water is life. And I think that's how we should read it. It's, it's a source of unending life. But then in verse 8, there's also this reminder of what it took to get there. With a reference back to chapter 20, when all people are judged and those not saved by Jesus are sent away to eternal punishment. And I, I get it. There's this struggle in the world today as Christians to ignore this part. Let's not talk about this because people get upset. Some of you right now might even be thinking, oh, it's one of those churches. And and frankly, if you mean by one of those churches, churches that believe in the entirety of the word of God and are unwilling to skip over any of it, then I would say, yes, we are one of those churches. If by one of those churches you mean people that talk about hell and damnation and punishment to make people feel guilty all the time, no, we are not one of those churches. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is where we're focused on because the gospel saves us from this. 
This is what we don't want people to experience. And the way we're going to keep people from experiencing this is to keep on talking about Jesus and pointing people to salvation only through Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. And yes, along the way, we have to also say this is where sin leads. If undealt with and not given to Jesus and not accepting his death on the cross in your place, this is where it leads. It is unavoidable. This is, even with this difficult conclusion, it is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. Everything is made new. All of the old ways, the fake ways, the false ways of seeking happiness and fulfillment, they're wiped away. All the substitute joys that are meaningless and empty, they're wiped away. All the ways that lead to misery and destruction and death are wiped away. And God is dwelling with his people in the place that he created. And and frankly, if you get nothing else from the rest of this sermon, I want you to hear this. All of that is only made possible through Jesus Christ. If if you're sitting here thinking, I need that, I, I long for that. If your heart's resonating with that need, listen to me. You don't need to fix yourself up or be better. Nobody's cleaning themselves up for that day. What you need is Jesus Christ. You need to trust that he died in your place and rose from the grave promising eternal life. You need Jesus. Because as there can be no heaven without hell, there can be no heaven without Jesus Christ. He made it possible for any of us to stand there. But we're not done looking at this beautiful picture, and I want to fly through the rest of it. Okay, we're going to do this. Stick with me. There's this beautiful image of all these things that are fulfilled, and there's so many details that our eyes kind of glaze over. I want to walk through them quickly, but for each one, it's pointing to something in Scripture that God is fulfilling. There's all of these themes, God wanting to dwell with us, leading his people, but all of these things point to Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, 9 through 27, we see so many of these things fulfilled. Look at verse 9. This angel comes, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues that happened in previous chapters, came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I love this. I picture this angel like just so excited. John, man, there's something else you got to see. Show them this too. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Last Battle, there's this beautiful phrase. There's this picture of them going into kind of heaven, into this eternal dwelling place of God. It's all fictional, but it's an interesting retelling. And along the way, they're seeing sights of God's land, and they're like, that is so cool. And a voice rings out, further up, further in, there's more to see. And I see this angel coming to John, like, John, there's more to see. You've got to check this out. And these images that he's going to show to John are straight out of the Old Testament. Look at verses 10 through 14. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What in the world is that all about? All of this is pointing to themes that have been set up through Scripture. God promised His people in Israel, the 12 tribes, that they would be His people and live with Him. And here we see that reflected in the New Jerusalem. He promised the church, those saved by Jesus Christ, they would be with Him. And we see that reflected through the names of the 12 apostles. Showing through all of this that there is one people, not two, those of Israel from the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, all saved only through Jesus Christ. There won't be factions in heaven. There will be no denominations. There will be no separate pockets of different ethnicities. We will all be together in the glorious presence of the Lord all saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And now the angel's going to do something interesting. In all this beauty, he's going to say to John, let's go measure the city. Look at verses 15 to 21. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made with a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass." A lot of you just fell asleep right there. Wake back up. If only there was something in Scripture that would help us to understand this. So so they go out and they measure the city, and it's a square. It's the same length as it is deep. Okay, square city. That's cool. No big deal. But he also measures the height. What kind of city can be a square equally in height that makes it a cube? That doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. This is pointing to something in the Old Testament. Is it possible there is somewhere in Scripture where something is meaningful that was laid out equal width and length and height? If only there was, we could understand what was happening here. But then he gives these other things. What about all these expensive materials in this square city? Where do we have a place in something that is a cube that has incredibly exquisite and expensive materials that make it up? If only there was something that would clarify this for us. There is. In the Old Testament, 
And those passages that we like to skim over because we're so confused by them in the Old Testament law that Chris is very helpfully helping us through, through the book of Leviticus, there is this description of this place God told his people to make, and it is the tabernacle. And later on, it will be built into a permanent building, the temple. And in that temple and in that tabernacle, in the innermost room, was where the presence of God would dwell. And guess the size of that room? A perfect cube. And guess what that room had to be made of? The most precious and expensive substances. So understand what we are being told here. This holy of holies that nobody could go in ever because they are sinners. Only the high priest, only once a year, only through all of these rituals could go into the very presence of the Lord. That place is the holy city where all those saved by Jesus Christ will live forever. Because God is with us. And when we understand that 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 struggle in us, that something is not right, when we understand that what's not right is our sin and Jesus has taken the place of our sin and now we will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, that gives hope, incredible hope. But wait, there's more. Look at verses 23 to 27. It says, I, or 22, I did not see uh, a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of, the, of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Of life. Did you see that? There's no temple there. Because the whole thing is a temple. We're going to live in the perfect, holy dwelling place of God forever and ever. And throughout the rest of that chapter, he talks about we are made perfectly and holy so God can dwell with us. It's just like the Garden of Eden, but now it's it's linked with God's work throughout the Old and the New Testament. And all of God's plans, all of God's purposes for all of God's people are fulfilled. It is finished. And, and I know, I know to some of you right now, you're thinking, I'm going through this struggle in my life and I need help and I need hope right now, right here. And I don't really care about a holy of holies in heaven and eternity. I, that's not really what I need right now. It is. It is absolutely what we need. Because it is what gives meaning and purpose to our life and that's what we need. It tells us that what we're going through right now, as hard as it is and as hopeless as we feel, it will not last forever. God has a conclusion and a glorious new beginning for all those saved by Jesus Christ. I've called this series Focal Point. Years ago, I taught through the book of Revelation and I called that series Seeing Clearly, which just goes to show I'm not very creative. But I think it's because I kept coming back to this idea. We think we see everything. 
but it's out of focus and we're reaching out for things, thinking we're grabbing on as something sure and helpful and hopeful, and it's not. And here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22, everything is brought into crisp focus. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." He starts by describing the city where God's going to dwell with us. And then the image shifts to rivers and trees. And suddenly what's being described is less like a city and more like a garden. And there, what we will see is the river of the water of life flowing from the very presence of God. And we will see over this water A tree, a tree that's familiar to us because it was in the garden, the tree of life, the tree that is this source of life, this image of God giving life to his people unending and uninterrupted. But we also see that the source of this life is coming from the lamb, Jesus Christ, the one who died to save us. And so here is where we will dwell forever and ever, living with our holy God, being sustained and enriched and fulfilled with his gift of life in unending measure. The curse of sin is gone. Those saved by Jesus Christ will look into the face of their God unashamed and unafraid forever and ever. And in verse 5, it says there'll be no more night. There'll be no need for the light of a lamp. I don't think he's saying there won't be a sun. There just won't be a need. God's glory will be seen by everyone. You ever wonder, where's God? What is he doing? In this time, do you know how we'll be able to answer that? Man, where's God? What he's, he's right there. Look at his light. Look at his glory. We will never, ever doubt the existence of God ever again. And it will be beautiful and glorious. All things from Scripture, everything that God has set up is brought into perfect focus here at the end. And I think we need to let this focus guide us as we read all of Scripture. Scripture is not about reading a passage and saying, how can I be a better person? It is about reading Scripture and saying, my God who created me has a plan How can I trust that plan? How do I live that plan out in my life? And when we start reading it that way, it's going to point us to Jesus Christ. Let me read the rest of the book of Revelation. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent an angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and, uh, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. 
Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy in this scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Did you hear what was repeated? Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I am coming soon. We can argue over the end times and the order, and we can talk about those things, and sometimes it's good often it's just a waste of time. Because what we need to focus on is Jesus is coming soon. What soon means, I guarantee Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, knows. And we will all know when it happens. And the Bible doesn't say, focus on the order of end times and figure it all out. The Bible says, focus on Jesus Christ and say, come, Lord Jesus. And I don't think we can just sit here on Sunday morning and say, come Lord Jesus. We need to go out every day of our lives and live our lives as a reflection that we are longing for and trusting in the fact that our Lord Jesus is coming back. Come Lord Jesus. And there are times we get caught up in this life and the ways of this world. And our heart doesn't resonate with that feeling. And the thought is, don't, don't come now. Don't, don't, I've got some more to do. I've got some other things. And in that moment, we have to understand we're bringing back control. We're grabbing it for ourselves. If we can trust that our Savior is Lord Most High, knows way more than us, and His perfect ending is coming in His perfect timing, we can say, come, Lord Jesus. There's so much hope here for those saved by Jesus Christ. And the Bible ends with all sin being removed. The heavens and earth made new. Jesus Christ coming and reigning forever and ever. Friends, our life right now is just a blip. All of human history is just a blip. What we have talked about today and throughout this series is what will last forever. Too many people are investing all of their lives in their blip. 
And scripture, if we allow it to place our eyes on the true focal point, focuses us to something so much greater. In many ways, the Bible ends exactly where it begins. A sinless world, sinless people living in the perfect holy presence of God. But there is one thing that's missing from Genesis. See, there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's nowhere else in the book of Revelation because we will know good and evil. And for all eternity, we will remember how bad sin was. And I've often wondered what keeps it from all just happening again? What keeps it from that one person waking up one day and saying, I'm going to go my own way? Because that's the difference. We will always have this memory of how awful sin is and the beautiful presence of the holy God. And every day for eternity, we will say, this is so much better. How could we ever go back? And all sin and all desire to sin will be removed forever and ever. So friends, if today you're feeling that need, that something's not right, I don't want you to leave from this place and I don't want you to think that the Bible says clean yourself up, fix yourself, and then you'll feel better. That's just another substitute and it's another lie. The Bible says you need Jesus Christ. Only he can change you because only he is the focal point of all scripture. And I pray that we would be people that would cry out in the words of scripture, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are reading things that in so many ways are bigger than we can understand. And and I kind of sympathize with John who had to write some of these things down. And sometimes it seems like he's, he's struggling to figure out how to communicate the beauty and the awesomeness of what he's seeing. And I praise you that you, through the power of your, your spirit at work and those that wrote scripture, you made sure that what was written down is exactly what you want. And God, I believe that same spirit is at work among us today. That we who would want to put our own interpretations and and our own explanations and our own things that we think are important on your word, you, you clear that away. And I pray that we would allow your word to speak for itself. And when we do, Father, I truly believe we see the focal point of all scripture is your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that would be the focal point of our lives, the focal point of what we talk about, the focal point of what we live for and why we gather as a church. And when we go out, what is on our hearts and minds is the truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God, then I pray as, as through this series, I've hoped to give people a taste of your word. I pray that they would long for more. And when they dig into your word, they would remember it's all about Jesus. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today that their life is not all about Jesus. And they're wondering where happiness and joy can come from. And they're trying to find it in many places and they're just constantly dissatisfied. May they hear the words of the water of life and say, yes, come Lord Jesus. 
and accept your son as their savior who died in their place that they may be set free from their sin. And for the rest of us, may we live the truth of those words. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.